All right. Thanks, Laura. You can get to that PowerPoint there. I'm going to get my first picture up this morning. But uh, over the last few weeks, and in fact, over the last couple of years, we've said it often enough, right? That a kingdom needs a king. That a kingdom needs a realm. You know, you've got to have a place for the king to rule. That the kingdom needs subjects. Oh, wait, that's not the right picture. Never mind. Um, that the kingdom needs subjects uh, and that a kingdom runs on certain, that's the one, that a kingdom runs on, on certain principles. There's an ethos of, to the kingdom. So, so think about, you know, the United Kingdom and the formal British stiff upper lip or think of the American kingdom, loud and brash and in your face or the Swiss kingdom of efficiency and everything runs on time or the South African kingdom we're in our bureaucracy. I'm not even sure if God can work a miracle. Right? So this a kingdom needs all these things to operate, right? And when it comes to the, the concept or the idea of the kingdom of God, it's those same things that come into play. The kingdom has a king. The kingdom has subjects. The kingdom has a realm. The realm is in the hearts of those who love and serve him. The kingdom has an ethos that it runs on. So, so that's how the kingdom of God functions and operates. But there is, there is another kingdom. We have the United Kingdom, the kingdom of Eswatini. We have the kingdom of God. But we can talk about a, another kingdom. And I don't know what to call it, but I called it the shadow kingdom. Like the, the, the kingdom in rebellion against, against God's kingdom. It also has a king. It also has subjects. It also has a, 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 an ethos and a driving force behind it. And those two kingdoms run in opposition to each other. God's kingdom and this shadow kingdom that runs in the background. And it's not the kingdom of God and the kingdom of the devil. We're not going there. The kingdom of God and the kingdom, the kingdom of man, kingdom of humankind, the kingdom, the kingdom of your soul. And each of those kingdoms, like every kingdom should, promises the same kind of things. Those two kingdoms promise peace and prosperity and blessing and comfort. It's what you want in any kingdom. It's what we want in our South African kingdom. We want a kingdom of peace and prosperity and smooth functioning. We want justice and truth to prevail. We want that in any kingdom. And when it comes to our own individual lives... We want our lives to be peaceful and satisfying and, and full and filled with joy. Those are the things that we want. And the question is, how are we going to get those things? How will we find peace and contentment and fullness and satisfaction and joy and ecstatic experiences? Where will, he, where will we get that in this life? Because it's not coming from the government. And the thing is, there's only one of those two kingdoms, the kingdom of God or the shadow kingdom, that can actually fulfill its promises. And 2 Samuel, which is where we started two weeks ago, 2 Samuel chapter 2 sets out for us two kings, two kingdoms, two forces behind the throne, two sets of ethos or principles that run the kingdom, each with the same desire to deliver us from our enemies and lead us into this benevolent kingdom of peace and prosperity. And so this morning really is a story or a day of contrast between two kingdoms. So if you have a Bible, would you turn with me to 2 Samuel chapter 2, 
going to read just the first 17 verses this morning. In the course of time, David inquired of the Lord, Shall I go up to one of the towns of Judah, he asked. And the Lord said, Go up. And David asked, Where shall I go? To Hebron, the Lord answered. So David went up there with his two wives, Ahinoam of Jezreel and Abigail, the widow of Nabal of Carmel. David also took the men who were with him, each with his family, and they settled in Hebron and its towns. Then the men of Judah came to Hebron, and there they anointed David king over the house of Judah. When David was told that it was the men of Jabesh-Gilead who had buried Saul, he sent messengers to the men of Jabesh-Gilead to say to them, The Lord bless you for showing this kindness to Saul, your master, by burying him. May the Lord now show you kindness and faithfulness, and I too will show you the same favor because you have done this. Now then, be strong and brave, for Saul your master is dead, and the house of Judah has anointed me king over them. Meanwhile, Abner, the son of Ner, the commander of Saul's army, had taken Ishbosheth, the son of Saul, and brought him over to Mananaim. And he made him king over Gilead, Ashuri, and Jezreel, and also over Ephraim, Benjamin, and all Israel. Ishbosheth, son of Saul, was 40 years old when he became king over Israel. He reigned two years. The house of Judah, however, followed David. The length of time that David was king in Hebron over the house of Judah was seven years and six months. Abner, son of Ner, together with the men of Ishbosheth, son of Saul, left Mananaim and went to Gibeon. Joab, son of Zariah, and David's men went out and met them at the pool of Gibeon. One group sat down on one side of the pool and one group on the other side. Then Abner said to Joab, let's have some of the young men get up and fight hand to hand in front of us. All right, let them do it, Joab said. So they stood up and were counted off, 12 men from Benjamin and Ishbosheth, son of Saul, and 12 for David. Then each man grabbed his opponent by the head and thrust his dagger into the opponent's side, and they fell down together. So that place in Gibeon was called Helkath Hazurim. <clears throat> the battle that day was very fierce, and Abner and the men of Israel were defeated by David's men. Did you pay attention to all the names and all the words and all the splash? So here's what I'm here's what we're gonna do this morning. We're gonna set these things side by side. So Laura, you can flip to the next screen there. So we're going to set all these things side by side this morning. We're going to contrast the two kings, the two kingdoms, the, the, the two powers behind the throne, the two kind of ethos in terms of what runs each kingdom and see where that takes us to. So we've got two kings in the story, right? You, I hope you got them. The first king, the first guy that we come across is David. He, he's the guy who has been called the man after God's own heart. If we'd spent some time reading 1 Samuel, you would have known that we've been waiting for this moment for a long time. We've been waiting for the moment that David finally gets onto the throne and becomes the king. Because we know that he's been appointed as God's king. Again and again in, in 1 Samuel we're told... David is the one that's anointed by God. David is the one who's going to deliver God's people from their enemies. And time and again, we've seen David do that in 1 Samuel. 
There's been uh, several times where, where David, has, David rescued his people from Goliath. David went and rescued a bunch of people from, from the Amalekites. He's been all over the place rescuing and delivering God's people. Something that King Saul was never able to do. And so we've been waiting for David to take the throne, to be the shepherd of God's people. And finally, here it is, it happens David, God's king, is taken to the throne and David, God's king, is going to, in time, deliver God's people from their enemies. So we're very excited David's on the throne. Yay! But, not all of Saul's family is dead. Saul and Jonathan, we read about them last week, they died in battle. But Saul has a couple of other kids lurking around in the background and so there is this challenge to the throne for God's people. Who's going to rule them? David is the rightful king. He's the one anointed and appointed by God. He is chosen by God. But there's someone else who seems to have a claim to the throne because he's a descendant. He's the son of Saul. And so we're introduced to this guy called Ishbosheth. Now, Often in the Bible, names are significant. They tell us something of the personality and the character of the person. And it's no different with Mr. Ishbosheth. Ish means in South Africa, ish. Ish. And that's this guy's just like, ish, dude. Um, ish in Hebrew means man. And isha means woman. Um, so all the way back in Genesis chapter 2, Adam sees Eve and he says, I am Ish and you are Isha, man and woman. So Ish means man. What about Bosheth? Bosheth means shame. And again, not the South African, oh, shame. Right? But shame as in shameful. And so you've got this man taking the throne and the guy who's going to apparently lead Israel, who's going to apparently lead them into peace and contentment and deliverance from their enemies, and the guy who's going to do that is the son of shame. Not Ach shame, the son of shame. The shameful man is going to apparently... I mean, what kind of name was that to give your children, right? Thinking about something to call my child. I'm going to call my child the son of shame. Is shame. <laughs> What's interesting is if you go to 1 Chronicles, you'll find a list of all of Saul's sons, and you'll find the same guy with a slightly different variation of his name. In, in, in 1 Chronicles, he's called Ishbal. Now, Baal, Baal just means Lord or God, but it's actually associated with the Canaanite gods and the fertility and prosperity gods of the time. And so you go, Saul, what's going on here? You named your child the son of Baal? Now maybe he's just calling him the son of, the son of my Lord. But it's just, there's all sorts of dodginess in that, isn't there? And you wonder if maybe he was initially called Ishbal, and the people of Israel just couldn't get their heads around calling him Ishbal, and go, no, no, he's Ishbosheth. I couldn't verify this, but I think, I think in addition to all of this, that Ishbosheth was born um, from one of Saul's concubines. So there's all sorts of things mixed in the picture here that kind of indicate this guy as the king of shame. And this idea 
that this king of shame is going to rule and lead people into glory and victory. Is that even possible? David, oh, did it all come up? Does it not come up bit by bit? Go back, Laura, doesn't it go back? Um, David, on the other hand, means the beloved. Oh, dear. Ish. Does it all just come up at once? Click your head. Ah, forget it. Throw the thing away. I worked so hard on that. Um, and so, so you've got Ishbosheth, the son of shame, and the other king, the beloved one. Does it make you think maybe of, you know, a little bit later in the Bible when we hear God saying, This is my beloved son? Does it not make you think of a different king? And we see in this just a hint that the whole idea here is to see that David points us to a better king who will deliver and lead his people. So we've got two kings, two kingdoms. We've got the beloved son and the son of shame. And it's kind of which king do you want to rule you? Which king is in charge of your life? But what about the power behind the throne? What about the power behind the throne? What, what rules these two? What, what's, the, what, what's the driving force behind these two kingdoms? What's at the center? What's in the middle? What is the power behind David's throne? What is it that, that's getting David going? In a sense, whose kingdom is it? David's the king, but whose kingdom is it? Who does it belong to? And the obvious answer is it's, it's God. And you can see that because David starts off by saying, by praying, by inquiring of the Lord. Lord, where shall I go? What shall I do? It starts, that chapter starts. Oh God, should I go to Judah? And part of me is going, ah, why do you need to ask? Of course you need to go to Judah. We've been waiting for 30 years for you to do this. Why do you need to ask? Just go. And David's going, not my will. But yours be done. If David wants to rule, if David wants to be king, surely the best thing to do is to get in there as soon as the throne is vacated and take over from Saul. Get in there and rally the troops and, and you know, claim the throne. But David's not rushing anywhere. He's waiting for God to direct him. Where shall I go? And God says to him, yeah, you should go. And in fact, you should go to Hebron. All of this because David is subject to a greater king. David's not off to grab power. David bows his knee to a greater king. It's not David's kingdom. It's God's kingdom. David is God's regent in a sense. Ruling in his behalf. What about the shadow kingdom? What about the other king? What's the, what's the power behind the throne of Ishbosheth? Right, so God has appointed David. Who has appointed Ishbosheth? A guy called Abner. Now, Abner, he's also got interesting meanings for his name. Abner just means the son of Ner, which is just, if your dad's name is Ner, it just sounds, yeah. What's your name? Yeah. <laughs> Ner means light or candle. Abner is the son of light. Or call him the enlightened one. Doesn't that sound grandiose and magnificent? 
the enlightened one. And what has the enlightened one done? He's appointed the king of shame to rule his kingdom. And that's what happens over the next couple of chapters that you see that the real power behind the throne is Abner. He's the one that's doing stuff and active and making the moves. He's the uh, Ishbosheth is really not much more than just a puppet. Abner is manipulating the king for selfish gain. In, in addition to all of that, Abner happens to be Saul's cousin. So he's Ishbosheth's uncle once removed or something. He was also Saul's chief general in the army. So this is a military man with some good strategy going on there. He was a key man during Saul's reign. And Abner is going, I don't want to lose out the benefits that I had under Saul. I don't want to bow my knee to another king. I'm not going to bow my knee to David. I want to be in charge. I want to rule things. I want to make it happen. I'm going to set up my puppet king, the king of shame, and I'll rule the kingdom through him. And that's my way to peace and prosperity and happiness and joy and comfort and contentment. Not bowing the knee to God's king, but setting up my own king of shame and bowing to him. Can you see yourself in this? Let me, let me be clear in case you're missing it. You are Abner. That's who you are in this story. And I know you're going, no, 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 I'm David. I'm godly. I'm God's chosen one. No, you're Abner in this story. We're all Abner. We're all children of the Enlightenment. Filled with light, knowing what we want, knowing exactly what we need, knowing exactly how we're going to get it. And we're going to find our peace and contentment and happiness and joy in this life by appointing all sorts of things to, to give us direction and guide us and rule over us. Whether it be the pursuit of money, the pursuit of health and wealth, the pursuit of beauty, the pursuit of, of control and power over others, the pursuit of comfort and ease. We set those things up to be our little petty kings, to be the things that will lead and guide us into truth and joy and light and happiness. And we say, if we can have those things, we will be satisfied. And none of them satisfy. None of them lead us to deliverance from our fears. The fears of poverty. The fears of, 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 of depression. The fears of, of ill health. The fear of not having enough at the end. None of those things will deliver us from, from our fears. And yet we do it. We set these things up as our kings. We bow before them. We pay our taxes. We pay our dues in the hopes that they will give us what we want. I'm going to read a quote from C.S. Lewis. It again requires your brain to be engaged. I know it's hot on a Sunday morning. But pay attention. If I can find where... There you go. I'll try and explain as we go. So C.S. Lewis, one of the greatest writers of the 20th century, he was the guy who wrote the Narnia books. Uh, he, was a, uh, he started off an atheist, became a Christian in his early 30s, um, regarded as the number one scholar of his age. 
He says the, the experience of romanticism, the experience of joy, the longing for something, he says, is one of intense longing. So he's talking about the desires that we have for satisfaction and joy and fulfillment. And he says this desire, this intense longing that's within us is distinguished from other longings. In the first place, there is a sense, there is a longing in us that what we want is acute and even painful, and yet the longing for it is even somehow a delight. Are there things you want in life that just the longing itself is a joy? You just can't wait for that holiday. And the anticipation of that holiday is in itself a joy and a delight. Yes? No? Blank faces? Okay? Uh, difficult? I know. Uh, you had those moments. He says there is a sense in which the hunger is better than any fullness. The poverty is better than any wealth. It's again, it's like you're deep longing for the holiday and you get to the holiday and the holiday is over and it's gone. And actually the longing for it was in some ways better than the experience of it. Yeah? Vaguely like, no, none of you have experienced anything like that. He says there's a peculiar mystery about the object of this desire. Inexperienced people and inattention leaves all of us inexperienced. So we're just not paying attention to our desires and longings. He says inexperienced people suppose that when they feel it, they know what they want. So I have this longing for something. It's the longing for holiday. That's what I need. And C.S. Lewis says, you, 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 you messed up because you get to this holiday and you think, ah, I've, got, I've, I've achieved it. But he says, if you, if you think long about it, you realize that your longing for holiday pointed to a deeper longing for a better holiday that never ends. Do you follow? And, he's, and he puts, the, puts it like this. He says, we, we, lo we, we think we know what we're desiring. Some past event, some perilous ocean, some erotic suggestion, a beautiful meadow, a distant planet, a great achievement, some great quest or knowledge. In other words, we think, if I get this thing... I will be satisfied. And I think we all experience a measure of that. When I finally finish school and I get out of that place where people tell me what to do all the time and I'm finally all grown up, then I'll have it all. Here I am many years later still waiting for that to happen. And then he says, every one of these impressions is wrong. He says, the sole merit I claim in writing this is that it's written by one who has proved them to be wrong. And he says, there's no room for vanity in that claim. I know they're wrong, not by intelligence, but by experience. In other words, C.S. Lewis says, I've tried them and they don't work. I've been there, done that, got the t-shirt, and I'm no more satisfied now than I was then. He says... I myself have been deluded by every one of these false answers in turn and contemplated each of them earnestly enough to discover the cheat. If a man diligently followed this desire, pursuing the false objects until their falsity appears and then resolutely abandoning them, he must come out at last into the clear knowledge that the human soul was made to enjoy some object that is never fully given. In other words, if you pay attention to your life and you earnestly pursue those things that you believe will give you, give you that meaning and fulfillment because those desires are not wrong. 
They're not bad. It's not wrong to long for a holiday. It's not wrong to have a partner in marriage that you love and delight in. Those things are not wrong. But pursuing them to the very end, you will find that they do not satisfy. And that they, it doesn't then mean that that's all. It's meaningless. Life is meaningless. Might as well give up. But that it points to a deeper longing that finds a genuine fulfillment somewhere else. Someone else said those same words. A man came called Solomon. And he said, I was wealthy, I built buildings, I set up statues for myself, I had the dancing girls and rock and roll bands, and it was all meaningless, meaningless, a chasing after the wind. We never find what we're looking for because our king's sexual experience and more money and your picture on the fashion magazine, whatever it might be, does not satisfy deeply what we want. This week, we watched Troy. 20 years old. My goodness. Orlando Bloom acted in that. And he was a child. Flip. At one point in the movie, a priestess is being kidnapped and captured, and she's sitting with Brad's pits. Um, or, or as he is in the movie, Achilles. And she says to him, you didn't just come here to rescue Helen, Helen of Troy, right? That's the pretense for this war. She says, you didn't come here just to rescue Helen. What are you here for? What do you want? And Hollywood, in those, one of those wonderful moments, Brad Pitt says, I want what all men want. More. And I think, how appropriate. It's exactly what it is. We want more because nothing ever truly satisfies. And we're Abner, the son of enlightenment, thinking we know what we want, setting up our kings and idols to give us what we think we need, finding out that they can never ever satisfy. And Abner discovers that later on, that this king, Ishbosheth, cannot bring deliverance from his enemies, cannot set the people of Israel free. We need a better king. We need a better king. Where do the kings rule? Where does God king rule from? Where does he go? David goes to Hebron. And Hebron has a cool history in the Old Testament. First time we come across the place of Hebron is Genesis chapter 14. And God has just said to Abraham, Listen, you're going to inherit a whole stack of land. And God takes Abraham to Hebron and makes Abraham stand on a hill at Hebron and says to Abraham, everything that you see will be yours. This is the land that has been promised to you. Hebron is the place where the promised land is first in view. And, and Abraham looks at that and sees not just the promised land, but he's able to see, Hebrew says he sees something further, something deeper. Again, that whole thing about this longing. He doesn't just want a patch of grass. Hebrew says that by faith, Abraham was able to see a city whose foundations and builder is God. But Hebron is that place where the promised land is first in view. And yet... For the next 50, 60, 70 years, Abraham wanders around the land. A rover, wanderer, nomad, vagabond, 
everywhere he roams, where he lays his head is where he calls home. He has no fixed abode, no place that, to call his own. And then one day his wife Sarah dies. And so Abraham approaches a bunch of guys and says, Listen, I'd like to bury my wife. I don't particularly want to drag her corpse along with me as I travel around. Um, it would be nice to put her in the ground somewhere. And he says, I know there's a nice cave in that field over there. And so Abraham gets into some negotiation, does some real estate deals with a couple of guys, and buys a field in Hebron. And buries his wife Sarah in a cave in Hebron. And when Abraham dies... He's buried in that same cave. And when Abraham's son Isaac dies, he gets buried there. And when Isaac's son uh, Jacob dies, Jacob is buried there along with both of his wives. And when the people of Israel come back out of Egypt, they bring with them the mummified remains of Joseph and put Joseph in the same tomb in Hebron. Hebron is not just the place where the promised land is first on view. Hebron is the first part of the promised land that God's people own. It's the first piece that they come into possession of. And David is going to claim the kingdom and he goes to Hebron. The very start, the very first place of the kingdom of God, of God's people. What about Ishbosheth? Where is he going to rule from? He's going to rule from a place called Mananaim. So Abraham, going back to Abraham again, Abraham has two grandsons, Jacob and Esau. Esau's a hairy guy, but Esau's a nice, honest guy. Jacob is a smooth guy. He's also a smooth talker. He's a cheat. He's, he's a nasty guy. And, and they, they have differences. Jacob steals from his brother and then runs away. And for 20 years, Jacob lives the other side of the world. He gets a couple of wives and gets himself very rich and then starts getting cheated by his father-in-law and decides to come back home. On the way back home, he goes, hang on a sec. My brother Esau, this could be a problem because Esau has also become wealthy and powerful back home. And Jacob goes, the last time I heard anything from Esau, Esau said, I'm going to kill you. And he's like, has that changed? And so Jacob is a little bit concerned. And so what Jacob does is he gets to a river and divides his family and possessions and, and, and servants and whatever else, divides them into two camps, one on either side of the river. So he divides his household so that if Esau attacks one side, the other side can run away. So at least he'll save half of what he has. And those two camps on, the, on either side of the river become known as Mananaim. Because Mananaim means two camps. It carries the implication of divided and not united. I was born in a town in England called Newcastle. And Newcastle has a football team called Newcastle United. Because it is one city united around one team, Newcastle United. Greatest soccer team in the world. <laughs> Stephen <laughs> is born in the town of Manchester. And Stephen supports Manchester United. Except it's a lie. Because even Stephen will tell you that Manchester has not one, but two soccer teams. Manchester City and Manchester not United. Right? 
There is a red and blue dividing line down the city of Manchester. It's a divided city. The illustration we can take in all sorts of directions. The point is, <laughs> Ishbosheth and Abner rule in a place that is divided and rule in division. That's what they do. David rules over Judah. Ishbosheth and uh, his friend Abner uh, declare, We rule. Did you notice it? We rule over all Israel. Well, that's quite good. All Israel, except the bit that David rules over. So all Israel except that bit. Oh, and also except the bit that the Philistines are ruling at the moment because they just beat Saul in battle and the Philistines happen to rule everything from the edge of the Mediterranean Sea all the way up to the riverbank of the Jordan. That entire section. So, so the Philistines rule all of this. David rules this. Ishbosheth has got this little bit here. And in fact, he doesn't even have all of it. He's got a tribe here and a tribe there and a bit here and a bit there. It's a con. The divided city that rules all. No, it doesn't. No, you don't. The shadow kingdom makes all sorts of claims. To rule the world. To conquer all our enemies. Bring everything you want. And it's a scam. It doesn't. What about the principles that govern these two kingdoms? Here's the first thing that David does when he's anointed king. He has a word with the men of Jabesh Gilead. Now again, I'm sorry, there's lots of stories about all these people, but it's, I think it's interesting. Um, uh, Jabesh Gilead, we, we find out about them at the end of the book of Judges, and the last story in Judges is a, is a dreadful story. It's a, it's a story about gang rape, dismemberment, and civil war, kind of in that order. Um, so what ends up happening is... Um, all the people of Israel go to war against the tribe of Benjamin because the tribe of Benjamin are protecting gang, gang rapists. And Israel say, this is not right, this is unjust. And they go to war and they wipe out the Benjaminites except for a handful of men. Everyone else is destroyed. Men, women and children, just this handful of men. And then Israel go, oh dear, now what? Now we're going to lose an entire tribe of Benjaminites. What are we going to do? We need to repopulate the Benjaminites. We need the, the tribe to survive. And so they, they do a bit of a roll call and they go, ah... The men of Jabesh Gilead did not come to battle. They didn't come and stand with us in the fight for justice. They didn't come and stand with us in fighting against this gang rape, this dreadful thing. So here's what we're going to do. We're going to go to war against Jabesh Gilead, the town. And so they do, and they wipe out everyone in Jabesh Gilead except four young la four, 400 young ladies. And they spare them, and they give them as brides to the tribe of Benjamin. Don't even go there, okay? That's dodgy in itself too, I know. The point, without getting lost in all this stuff, the point is that the men of Jabesh Gilead were, were covered themselves in shame by not turning out to stand against injustice. Fast forward a couple of years, the town of Jabesh Gilead becomes repopulated. They're surrounded by a bunch of Canaanites and the Canaanite tribes say, tell you what, surrender and we'll poke your eye out. Or don't surrender and, we'll, and you'll die. Those are your options. They say, give us a week to, 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 to decide. Uh, and in that week, they send a, a runner off to King Saul to say, please help us. Saul comes along, defeats the Canaanites, set them free from what could be potential shame. Either the shame of death or the shame of losing an eye. That would have been, in those days, in an honor culture, a, a, a symbol or a sign of shamefulness. You get all the shame coming through here and, you know, thinking about the king of shame, all the shamefulness here. 
the men of Jabesh Gilead have not been particularly well known as brave and honorable men. And yet Saul and his son Jonathan die in battle. The Philistines come, chop their heads off, take their heads to the temples of their gods, and take the bodies of Saul and Jonathan, strip them, and hang them on a wall. Again, to shame Israel. See what happens to your greatest warriors, Israel. See what happens to your king. He is stripped and beheaded and nailed to a wall. And the men of Jabesh Gilead do something brave. In the dark of night, they sneak across into enemy territory and they go to the wall. And I'm sure they have to make a little bit of noise. And they recover the bodies of Saul and Jonathan. And they cover them and they cover the shame and they bring them home and they bury them. And it's like, well done, guys. You have, you have brought honor upon yourself instead of shame. David comes as king. What should David do with these men? Well, on the one hand, it's honor them because they've been honorable. But actually, these guys are friends of Saul. And who is Saul? Saul is David's enemy. Right? So the enemy, the friends of my enemy is my enemy as well. That's the way we think. In fact, David even says to them, he talks to them about your Lord, Saul. What happens in any kind of, um, what do you call it, regime change? What happens to the supporters of the old regime? They die. They're expelled. They're kicked out of government. They lose their position and their power and their influence. What should happen to the men of Jabesh Gilead? David should look after himself and execute them. They're dishonorable men. They proved that over the years. They're supporters of Saul, his enemy. Is this going to be a thorn in David's flesh? What does David do? He displays grace. He opens his arms and says, Welcome into the kingdom. Because the kingdom of God operates by grace, by kindness. Come on in. Come and be part of the kingdom. You're welcomed. Your shame, it's gone. Come on in. And don't, don't, don't you love that image? This image of God's king opening his arms wide to welcome you into his kingdom. No matter your shame, no matter your past, no matter your history, no matter who it is that you've called master and lord and the king of god's kingdom opens his arms and says welcome into the kingdom it's by grace ishbosheth and abner's kingdom that does that run on grace not at all not at all that, that's a kingdom of, of of power and control and war the first thing that abner does is gathers himself together a bunch of armed men gathers his soldiers together and marches out for war David's general responds. Who's the aggressor in the story? Abner is marching with his army. They sit down at the pond. Who, who makes the first move? Again, who's the aggressor? Abner. I've got an idea. Let's have a wrestling match. And I don't know if all, tw all, all 24 of them thought, I'll be sneaky, I've got a knife here, and they're all at this, I don't know. But all 12, 24 of them die. Who, who's the aggressor every time? It's Abner. Because Abner's kingdom and the kingdom of Ishbosheth is a kingdom of war and terror and violence and fear and power and control. And the kingdoms that we run, where we think our king will deliver us and bring us to what we want, is a kingdom that runs in fear. Because we're always afraid that we'll lose what we one day hope to have. It's a kingdom of control and power over us, not a kingdom of grace. The result of this, we'll read about it more next week, is that... Um, 
Joab's soldiers chase Abner's soldiers. Abner loses 350 men. Joab only loses 20. Abner ends up on a hill, surrounded. They're going to die. And Abner, of all things, on the top of the hill, somewhat defensible, but yet, you know, he's on the run, stands up and shouts, Job, Joab, what are you doing chasing me? Why are you fighting me? Because, because you're an idiot. Because... Because you started this war. Because you're, you're surrendered to the false king. Because you're not willing to bow to God's king. Because, because you started this. What do you... Uh, what does Joab do? What Joab should do is take him out. Just finish it off now, there and then, be done with. In fact, what's happened is that Abner has killed, just killed, and in battle, so call it fair battle, but in battle has just killed Joab's brother. Job has every right to say, no, this is war. Uh, We're going to have a duel. You're over. You're done. What Joab does is he extends mercy. And he walks away. Because the kingdom of God runs on grace and mercy. Now, it's going to get messed up next week because Joab will take his revenge. But for now, the kingdom of God runs on grace and mercy. How does this end? How does my sermon end? It's gone on too long already. It ends like this, that there is an appeal to enter the kingdom. There is an appeal to dethrone our fake kings. And we like to think of this as a static thing. I'm either in the kingdom of God or I'm in the kingdom of man. And once I become a Christian, I'm in the kingdom of God and that's it. But the truth is, if we're honest with ourselves, we regularly go back to our own little kingdom and our own little king with this little belief. To be honest, that every single sinful action is proof that we have another king. Because I will violate God's commands, God's laws, in order to get something that I think I need and want. And so this is a call to daily, every day, every moment, dethrone, recognize what our kings are, dethrone them and enter into God's kingdom because he opens his arms with grace and says, I know what you just did. I know you just declared war on me again, but the arms are open and the doors are open and you're welcomed into the kingdom. And we're invited into the kingdom again and again and again. And I'm skipping ahead. Just a couple to, 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 to the next chapter, one verse, chapter, second chapter, chapter 3 and verse 17. Abner, remember who he is, confers with the elders of Israel and said, For some time you have wanted to make David your king. Now do it. For the Lord promised David... By my servant David, I will rescue my people Israel from the hand of the Philistines and from the hand of all their enemies. You see what happens to Abner? He gets to the point where he realizes that the king of shame, Ishbosheth, his puppet king, run by him, cannot deliver him from his enemies. That his own little kingdom will never deliver him from his enemies of shame. That his own little kingdom will never deliver him from the Philistines and from his depression and from his deep sorrow and sadness and from his desperate need to be liked and from his desperate need for approval and his constant need to be in control and, and, and his, the absolute certainty of my future set. His king can never deliver him from those things. And so what does Abner say? Let's go to David. Because David is God's chosen king. And here's what God promised David. Through you, all the enemies will be destroyed. 
And we have a better David. We have a better king. The beloved son of God, Jesus himself, who sits at the throne and he invites us into his kingdom and says, come in. God says, come in because my son has defeated all the enemies. And it's the pursuit of him and of his kingdom that will lead to justice and righteousness and peace and truth and joy. It is the pursuit of him and his kingdom that will lead you to satisfying the deepest longings of your heart that this world simply cannot offer you. Jesus delivers. When the angel appeared to Joseph and Joseph is thinking about Mary, the angel says, your wife will have a son and you will call him Jesus for he will deliver his people from their sin. Enter his kingdom this morning. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we want to thank you for your son Jesus and for that invitation into the kingdom. Lord, give us the courage to dethrone the false and fake kings who will only lead us to shame and to instead pursue your king who leads us into victory. Deliver us, we pray, Lord Jesus. Amen.